Uh, about a month ago, there was a, a week, a particular week, where I heard back-to-back stories of two pastors who, um, who disqualified themselves from their role in ministry, one um, resigning completely, one having to take a uh, leave of absence for a while. And stories like this, if you've been a Christian for a while, if you pay attention to, to the news, um, they're really tragically common. They, they happen more than we ever wish that they would. But these two stories, uh, in particular, they, they hit me hard that week. And maybe it was because I knew one of these guys personally, and maybe it was because the other one I'd been really influenced by, I really appreciated his writing and his influence, been, it meant a lot to me in my life. Uh, Maybe it was because of just the respect that I had for both of these men. Or maybe it was just the the rapid rate at which I heard them, like back-to-back days, these two different stories. But there was a day where when I heard stories like this, my response would have been saturated with self-righteousness. Something in my heart that would sound like, you know, how could they do something so stupid? Um, How could they be so irresponsible? How could they take a platform that's meant for such good and, and, and use it for something like this. But my response now is actually a lot different to that. I would say it's a lot less naive and a lot more sober. Um, so as, I've been, as I thought about it, particularly that week, um, really three things happen in my own heart when I hear a story like this now, and particularly that week when this happened. Um, first, I get really sad. I get really sad that a, that a fellow brother or sister in Christ has fallen into that kind of sin. Usually there's really deep roots to that stuff. It's not just like a one-time oops kind of thing. It's really deep roots that they've, that they've been involved in that and that it's affected them and, and others. Um, second, it really makes me want to make it. Like I, like I, not just as a pastor, but just as a, as a Christian who wants to be faithful to my God for my life, I just want to make it. And I hear those stories, and they're tragically so common that I just want to make it. And the third thing is that it brings me back to this moment where I was asked one of the most humbling questions that I've ever been asked in my life. Uh, part of the assessment process for the church planning network that we're part of here at Liberty called the Acts 29 Network. Part of the assessment process, you get pretty far into it, and then one of the questions that they ask is, what is it that might take you out? What is it that might take you out? And what they're asking for there are, what are your liabilities? What are your liabilities as a human being, as a pastor, but, but even deeper than a pastor, just as a person? And they're not asking about, like, what are your full-blown liabilities? Like, if you had something that was really obvious and external at that point, it would have already been uncovered. They probably wouldn't have let you go that far in the assessment process. This is, they're, they're looking for the seeds of that. What are the seed liabilities, the things that, if they're left unchecked, they're going to implode, you know, or explode. They're going to they're cause some drastic fallout in your life. And if you're ever looking for just a, if you ever just find yourself in a day where you're looking to be humbled for some reason, you just want a lot of humility that day, digging deeply and honestly into your own liabilities is a, is a great way to do that. This is like the, the soul level equivalent of the full body cavity search. You know, what the pat down, what's in there in places that aren't immediately obvious? What's there that could, that could lead to something drastic? But what a question like that does is it forces us to this realization that because of the sin that's in our nature, that's in our character, each of us is capable of really awful things. 
we're capable, but for the grace of God, of terrible and evil things. So I came across this quote last week from a dead Dutch pastor named Herman Veldkamp. And when I read this quote, it really resonated as I've really been reflecting on this over the past month since I heard these two stories back to back. But Herman Veldkamp said this. He said, What distinguishes us from the world is not that we are less wicked, but that by the grace of God we have learned to see our wickedness for what it is and that we confess our sins. The church is the only body on earth that confesses sin. Where the confession of sin dies out, the church is no longer the church. So what he's saying there is that confession is not just this rote ritual that we make part of our services every week. It's not just something that we're supposed to do as Christians, although it, although it is something we're supposed to do. He's saying that confession is really our distinctive lifeblood as the people of God. It's not that, that Christians are, are better than anyone. It's actually that they're just aware of how bad they really are of how dependent they really are, and they've pleaded the grace and they've pleaded the mercy of God to cover that, to rescue them from that. So today, as we're closing out the series in the book of Daniel, we're going to hear Daniel offer an extended prayer of confession on behalf of the people of God, the Israelite people. In the second half of this book, if you've been with us in this series, there's a real shift from the first half to the second half of the book. The first half, the first six chapters, it's all narrative, And so Daniel, we see, is a character in the story. It's Daniel and a few of his friends, and they're exiled to Babylon. And the first six chapters kind of detail the life and experiences of life in exile. But the second half, starting in chapter 7, Daniel takes on this new role as a prophet. He starts to receive these visions from God. We looked at one of those in particular last week. And in the midst of those visions, there's kind of a break in that. That's what chapter 9 is. In the midst of these visions... As he's seeking to align himself to what God has already done, what God's doing, what God will do, Daniel offers up this really brutally honest and somber prayer of confession. But you're going to hear in this too, it's not without hope. It's not without hope. And as, as we, as men and women today, as the people of God today, as we seek to increasingly see the place of confession as the lifeblood of Christians... Daniel's prayer actually becomes a great model for us, even though we're in a different day and a different time. We have a great model here from Daniel. So we're going to pick it up in Daniel chapter 9, verse 1, and I'm going to read the first 23 verses. You can follow along with me as I do that. In the first year of Darius, the son of Ahasuerus, by descent a Mede, who was made king over the realm of the Chaldeans... In the first year of his reign, I, Daniel, perceived in the books the number of years that according to the word of the Lord to Jeremiah, the prophet, must pass before the end of the desolations of Jerusalem, namely, seventy years. Then I turned my face to the Lord God, seeking him by prayer and pleas for mercy, with fasting and sackcloth and ashes. I prayed to the Lord my God and made confession, saying, O Lord, the great and awesome God, who keeps covenant and steadfast love with those who love him and keep his commandments. We have sinned and done wrong and acted wickedly and rebelled, turning aside from your commandments and rules. We have not listened to your servants, the prophets, who spoke in your name to our kings, our princes, and our fathers, and to all the people of the land. To you, O Lord, belongs righteousness, but to us open shame, as at this day, 
to the men of Judah, to the inhabitants of Jerusalem, to all Israel, those who are near and those who are far away, and all the lands to which you have driven them, because of the treachery that they have committed against you. To us, O Lord, belongs open shame for our kings, to our kings, to our princes, and to our fathers, because we have sinned against you. To the Lord our God belong mercy and forgiveness, for we have rebelled against him, and have not obeyed the voice of the Lord our God by walking in his laws, which he set before us by his servants, the prophets. All Israel has transgressed your law and turned aside, refusing to obey your voice. And the curse and oath that are written in the law of Moses, the servant of God, have been poured out upon us because we have sinned against him. He has confirmed his words, which he spoke against us and against our rulers who ruled us, by bringing upon us a great calamity. For under the whole heaven there has not been done anything like what has been done against Jerusalem. As it is written in the law of Moses, all this calamity has come upon us, yet we have not entreated the favor of the Lord our God, turning from our iniquities and gaining insight by your truth. Therefore the Lord has kept ready the calamity and has brought it upon us. For the Lord our God is righteous in all the works that he has done, and we have not obeyed his voice. And now, O Lord our God, who brought your people out of the land of Egypt with a mighty hand and have made a name for yourself as at this day, We have sinned, we have done wickedly. O Lord, according to all your righteous acts, let your anger and your wrath turn away from your city Jerusalem, your holy hill, because of our sins and for the iniquities of our fathers. Jerusalem and your people have become a byword among all who are around us. Now therefore, O our God, listen to the prayer of your servant and to his pleas for mercy, and for your own sake, O Lord, make your face to shine upon your sanctuary, which is desolate. O my God, incline your ear and hear. Open your eyes and see our desolations and the city that is called by your name. For we do not present our pleas before you because of our righteousness, but because of your great mercy. O Lord, hear. O Lord, forgive. O Lord, pay attention and act. Delay not for your own sake, O my God, because your city and your people are called by your name. While I was speaking and praying, confessing my sin and the sin of my people Israel and presenting my plea before the Lord my God for the holy hill of my God. While I was speaking in prayer, the man Gabriel, whom I had seen in the vision at the first, came to me in swift flight at the time of the evening sacrifice. He made me understand, speaking with me and saying, O Daniel, I have now come out to give you insight and understanding. At the beginning of your pleas for mercy, a word went out, and I have come to tell it to you, For you are greatly loved. Therefore, consider the word and understand the vision. And this is God's word. Let me pray for us. God, thank you that you invite us to relationship with you. And that though you create us in your image for such glory, we fall short but that you open a way for us to come back to you, to be renewed and reconciled to you. And we're grateful, God, that part of what you have have opened to us is the opportunity to come and to confess and to be honest and to agree with you for the ways that we have fallen short and sinned. And God, thank you for Daniel's example of that, how he prays for himself, how he prays for the people of God. We pray that we would have our own hearts and ears tuned to your word this morning, that we might grow in our appreciation of what confession is, that we might grow in our practice of confession, both for ourselves and for the people that you've placed us amongst. 
And we pray this all in Jesus' name. Amen. So verse 1 here tells us that this takes place in the first year of Darius the Mede. So historically, it's 539 B.C., and Babylon, which is this great nation, great empire that's conquered Jerusalem, conquered the southern kingdom of Judah, has now itself been conquered by the Medo-Persian Empire. And Daniel, either from a scroll that he has access to, or just from memory, we're not exactly sure, he recalls the words that God gave to the prophet Jeremiah decades before this happened. And it would be words like we find in our Bible in Jeremiah chapter 25, 11 and 12, which says this, The whole land, meaning Judah, shall become a ruin and a waste, and these nations shall serve the king of Babylon 70 years. Then after 70 years are completed, I will punish the king of Babylon and that nation, the land of the Chaldeans, for their iniquity, declares the Lord. So Daniel either rereads that or remembers that. He perceives the fulfillment of what God has has promised would happen. He perceives that's taking place. The end of Babylonian captivity, uh, the freedom for the people of God. And it leads Daniel to this very specific response. He, He fasts. And he puts on sackcloth and ashes, signs of mourning, signs of grieving, and he prays. So it's not the victory dance, it's not the victory celebration that you might expect in a moment where you're about to be set free from 70 years of captivity. And he does that because Daniel, in his prayer here, he doesn't presume upon God. He doesn't presume upon the sovereignty of God. And here's what I mean by that. God is sovereign. He's in complete control of everything. He's planned these events. He's revealed them ahead of time through people like the prophet Jeremiah. He's orchestrated all of this as it's unfolded. And yet, the Israelite people still bear a very real guilt, a very real culpability for what has happened. So God's sovereignty, though we see it all through Scripture, and we see it specifically in the exile of God's people, God is sovereign in that, but it never negates human responsibility. So refusing to presume upon God and and also refusing to be just a passive bystander, Daniel is driven to his knees in a prayer of repentance. And in this prayer, we see really three main aspects, three main components, and we'll just spend the rest of our time looking at those. There's an acknowledgement of God, there's a sincere confession, and there's a plea for mercy. Acknowledgement of God sincere confession and a plea for mercy. So first, Daniel begins with this acknowledgement of God. Have you ever been in uh, the middle of a longer phone conversation and you space out for a second and you completely forget who you're talking to? Has that ever happened to anybody? I promise it never happened with any of you and it's been me on the other end of the phone, so don't worry about that. Maybe it's with like customer service, something like that. Sometimes we pray that way. Sometimes we pray that way, especially if we've been Christians for a long time. We have this long-term, long-standing relationship with God. Sometimes we forget who it is that we're dealing with, who it is that we're speaking with when we pray. So Daniel starts his prayer by acknowledging who God is. And he's worshiping. It's worship as he does that. He's giving honor to God. God's the one who's worthy of praise. He's the one who's worthy of adoration. He says, God, you are the one who is the awesome and great Lord. You're the one to whom belongs righteousness, he says. You're the one who so many years before has delivered the people out of slavery in Egypt, and he's brought them out with a mighty hand. And perhaps most significantly here, 
Daniel recalls and acknowledges that God is the covenant keeper. God's the covenant keeper. There's this refrain sprinkled all throughout Scripture where God makes this promise, this binding promise, this covenant to his people. I will be your God and you will be my people. And that's a really relevant promise for Daniel to cling to and to acknowledge in this prayer, particularly in this moment of history. Because even though it probably hasn't looked like it to the casual observer, God has remained faithful to his covenant in those 70 years of exile. So God doesn't abandon his people. He, he punishes their sin. He disciplines them in the way that a father disciplines children that he loves. And actually, when God made his covenant with his people, he spelled out these consequences. He spelled out these curses that would come if and when his people would reject him. Okay, what kind of consequences did God say would happen? Well, two of the big ones, exile from your homeland and being oppressed by foreign nations. So exactly the two things that the Israelite people are experiencing at this moment. And what Daniel realizes in verse 12, verses 11 and 12, is exactly this. He says, The curse and the oath that are written in the law of Moses, they've been poured out upon us because we've sinned. That God has confirmed his words, which are against us and our rulers who have ruled, by, ruled us by bringing a great calamity. So here's the thing about God's faithfulness. It's the source of his mercy. It's the source of his covenant-keeping love for us. It's also the source of the consequences for sin. Right? We don't like to think about God's faithfulness from that side very often. We, we prefer to think about God's faithfulness as in terms of what, it brings good gifts God makes good on his promises for good things to us, his mercy, things like that. We don't like it so much when God's faithfulness means that he's going to do exactly what he said he would do when his people reject and rebel against him. But if God weren't faithful in his words all the time, if he weren't faithful in all of his promises, he wouldn't be truly faithful, would he? What we see here, what the psalmist celebrates, is that God is faithful in all his words. He's faithful in all his words. And acknowledging that, worshiping God as this great and awesome covenant-keeping God, Daniel's reminded of God's faithfulness, and that actually sets the stage for him to then confess sin and to plea for mercy because the same covenant-keeping God that has made good on his consequences is also the covenant-keeping God who's promised to offer mercy on the other side of that. So secondly, after acknowledging God, Daniel prays a prayer of sincere confession. Actually, and you probably heard this as we read it, the vast majority of Daniel chapter 9 is lament and confession. It's heavy. It's weighty. Like Herman Veldkamp said, it's, it's seeing the wickedness for what it is, and it's confessing in light of that. So when we sometimes think about confession and what that is, we sometimes get all these different ideas in our mind. It can, we can complicate it. Don't overcomplicate it. What is confession? At its core... Confession is simply agreeing with God. It's simply agreeing with God. God, you have called this action or you've called this inaction wicked. You've called it wrong, and I see that. I agree with that. What, I, what I've done or what I've neglected to do, that's not honoring to you. And it's brought about these detrimental consequences just like you said it was going to bring about. Now, what specifically is Daniel agreeing with God about in his confession here in Daniel 9? It's a scholar named Dale Davis. He does a great job summarizing this. He uses the words defiance, 
defection, and deafness. Daniel's confessing the people's defiance, defection, and deafness. So defiance. The people have rejected and they've rebelled against their God. Defection. They've changed allegiances. They've changed allegiances. The people of Israel have worshipped other gods. Uh, They've trusted other nations and other powers instead of God. Uh, A particularly tragic example of this in the history of God's people was that when these foreign nations like Assyria and Babylon were pressing in on them and about to conquer them, the Hail Mary that they threw in that moment was not to God, but it was to Egypt. It was to the Pharaoh of Egypt. Which if you think about just the tragic twist that that is, Egypt is the nation that enslaved God's people for four centuries. 400 years, God had to work miracles to set them free from that slavery. And yet in the moment where they're threatened, they go back to the nation that enslaved them rather than the God that delivered them. So there's defection and there's deafness. They did not listen to God. They did not obey his words. They did not uh, heed the warnings of his prophets that he sent to them and to their fathers. Unlike Daniel, the people who came before him actually presumed upon God. They thought that, you know, God, surely God would never destroy the city where his holy temple is. Surely we're safe here because the temple's here in Jerusalem. Now, beyond agreeing with God about these things, Daniel then gets brutally honest and he burns all of the bridges that might exist for him to justify himself, defend himself, or make excuses. Which makes this confession stand out a lot from what we typically think of as confession, what typically poses as confession in our day. So have you ever listened to like a public apology and heard someone say these words, I'm sorry if my actions offended anyone. Have you heard anyone apologize that way? Apologize that way? I'm sorry if my, if my actions offended anyone. Okay, what is that? What is that? That's not really an apology. It's definitely not an acknowledgement of any wrongdoing. It actually is this crazy little Jedi mind trick that takes the blame off of the person who's apologizing and puts it on the recipient. It's like, hey, I did this. It's not really a big deal, but if you were offended by that, that's on you, but I'll say sorry. Now, in our desire to to justify ourselves, to defend ourselves, we're prone to treat confession that way sometimes. Like, God, I'm sorry that you were offended by this, but I have an explanation. You know, it was a hard situation. It's a tough situation. Uh, I didn't exactly know, like your, your, your word wasn't exactly clear. Like the, the Bible isn't quite a playbook for every specific situation that unfolds. Didn't know what to do. But real confession involves sincere contrition. Right? What the prophet Joel calls a rended heart. Or what the Apostle Paul calls godly grief. Remorse, being cut to the core. It's the kind of contrition that real confession involves. And sincere confession means that we actually put down the attempts we have to explain or to justify. So Daniel burns all of those defense and justification bridges. He burns them all behind him, and he confesses that he and his people are without excuse. So he says, there were messengers that were sent to us, the prophets, and we ignored them. There was God's law given through Moses. We didn't obey it. We had it. We didn't obey it. And we're the chosen people of God. We're the ones who have have been chosen by God to receive his favor. And yet, we did not entreat your favor. We went our own way, thinking our way was better than yours. Now, it's really difficult 
And it's really humbling to confess your sin like this. But the beauty of this, the beauty of burning those kinds of bridges, is that it makes it impossible to deny our desperate need for the mercy of God. Because we've got nothing left to stand on at that point. If you burn your bridges, your excuse-making bridges, it cuts your legs out from under you, but it lets you fall into the merciful hand of God. And that's the third thing then that we see in Daniel's prayer. He acknowledges God. He he offers sincere confession, burning the excuse-making bridges behind him. And then he pleads for mercy. Okay, now Daniel was a teenager, probably like 13 or 14, when he was taken to Babylon, when he was exiled. So he's now like an 80-year-old-ish man who's really only known life on that side of the fall of Jerusalem. That's most of Daniel's life. It's all of his adult life. We don't have any evidence from Scripture or elsewhere that Daniel himself actually participated in the sins that he describes here. Defiance, defection, and deafness. The opposite, actually. Everything we know about Daniel from his life and from this book is that Daniel remains faithful to God in an environment that's actually even more hostile to his faith. And yet... Here he is in Daniel chapter 9 confessing his own sin and the sins of the people. Okay, what is happening here? Daniel is interceding. He's interceding. He's become an intercessor. And intercessors, they don't just identify their own sin. They actually identify with the sins of their people. So they confess not just their own wrongdoing, their own kind of rebellion against God, They're not content just to keep their own noses clean before God, although they're concerned with that. They care about the people that God's placed them amongst more than that, so they care about their relationship with God, their sin as well. Starting in verse 15 here, um, Daniel begins pleading the mercy of God. He says, And now, O Lord God, and he begins his plea for mercy. And there's a couple things that we see come out from that. First, he appeals not to himself, but to the nature and the character of God. So verse 18 says, We do not present our pleas before you because of our righteousness, but because of your great mercy. Okay, And that actually makes a lot of sense, because the whole point of mercy is that we don't deserve it. That we actually deserve the opposite of that. So it would make no sense at all to plead the mercy of God because we thought that we were entitled to it. Far better to plead mercy based on who God is, on his character, on his nature. Because as Daniel is being reminded here, in all the things that this entails, God is, his, is a covenant-keeping God. So he's faithful to follow through on the consequences, but he's also faithful to, he will be faithful to follow through in his mercy and in his love. Daniel also here appeals to God's reputation. So he appeals to God's nature and character. He also appeals to God's reputation. And you probably heard it in there, sprinkled throughout this. There's an appeal to God's reputation in the world. God, you've made a name for yourself in the world. When you set your people free from Egypt, when you made them strong in the land that you promised to give them, you made a name for yourself. Now have mercy on your people for the sake of your own name. And this isn't just some kind of manipulative like tactic or trick that you apply in prayer. Like, hey, God, do this for your sake, not mine. Daniel actually has this deep passion 
for God to be recognized in the world for who He is. He's more powerful than these empires that come and go. He's the merciful God who saves. And Daniel wants the the world to know that. So he pleads and appeals to God's reputation. Do you ever pray like this? Do you ever pray appealing to the reputation of God, appealing to to the nature and character of God? Most of the time for me, most of my prayers, sad reality, is that they're just focused on me. They're focused on what I feel like is best for me in a particular moment based on just what I can see and discern in that moment. But Daniel here pleads the mercy of God, not even for his own sake. He pleads the mercy of God so that God's merciful reputation might be known, might be believed by the people around him. So as we see this model in Daniel, you and I need to become people who pray like this. We need to become people who pray like this. Uh, of course we need to confess our own sin and plead the mercy of God for our own, the own, our own ways that we fall short. Right? Sin is something that is immensely personal. There's a million different exponential combinations of the kinds of sin that we can evidence against God. And we're all unique a little bit in the ways that we do that. It's an immensely personal thing. Sin is also immensely shared. It's part of our common humanity. Because every single person who's ever lived, we all bear the image of God. We're all meant to to reflect that to God, but we all fall short of that glory. Even though the specifics are different, it's a common part of our humanity. We all rebel against the God whose image we bear. And so we need for ourselves, and we become for others intercessors. We confess the sins of the people of God and our own sin, and we plead His mercy. And it's not just so that, a little bit of a difference here with Daniel, like it's not so that God restores us as some kind of nation state. You're going to probably hear a lot of rhetoric. You've probably already heard a lot of rhetoric like that as changes happen in our culture that we need to like reclaim America for God. Okay, there's a big difference between America and Israel. Israel was a nation state. People of God as a nation state. Now, through Jesus, the people of God come from every tongue and tribe and nation and people. So there's differences that don't apply here. But on behalf of those people, from all nations, from all tongues, from all tribes, we have intercessors. We need intercessors. And every place that God sends his people needs intercessors, pleading on behalf of the people, just like Daniel does, O Lord, hear. O Lord, forgive. O Lord, pay attention and act, and delay not for your own sake. You have to spend a little bit of time this week thinking about the kinds of things that we as a people need to confess and plead the mercy of God for. What would this look like for us? This was what it looked like for Daniel centuries ago. What would that look like for us? And this is by no means an exhaustive list. I hope instead that this becomes a a catalyst for each of us to to do our own thinking and our own praying and our own interceding on behalf of people. But a few uh, prayers of confession that we might offer in our day and age. One is, God, forgive us for relying on the world to prop us up rather than being salt and light to the world. Forgive us for relying on the world to prop us up rather than being salt and light to the world. I think as Christians, particularly in the West, we've become too dependent on the support of governments and social structures to affirm our faith. 
when actually we're meant to depend on God alone. We're meant to be salt and light to the world, right? Not depend on it. That's the relationship that we're meant to have with the place that God has sent us. Salt uh, preserves and it flavors, right? Which assumes that there's, a, that there's tastelessness and that there's decay happening. Light assumes that there's darkness happening. So our faith should never stand on something or be propped up by something that is plagued by decay and tastelessness and darkness. Another prayer we could offer. God, forgive us for being too content with brokenness and injustice in the world. Forgive us for being too content with that, for being comfortable with that. We're not disturbed enough by the sins of racism, by violations of the sanctity of human life, whatever that might look like. We're not as disturbed by those things, by other affronts on the people of God as his image bearers. We're not disturbed as we need to be. If it doesn't affect us or those immediately around us, we so quickly forget in one ear and out the other and we move on to something different. We need to plead the mercy of God for that. Acknowledge the sin that that is against God and his people. Another one. God, forgive us for being defined more by what we're against than by what we're for. Forgive us for being defined more by what we're against than what we're for. You know how easy it is to be defined by what you're against? It's easy. It costs a lot more. It takes a lot more effort to actually be defined by what you're for. And yet it's so easy for all of us to be more defined by what we're against. So as the people of God, this is actually, it's sad, but this has actually become our reputation in a lot of places. Christians are known for what they're against and not what they're for. So if we're anti-abortion, for example, okay, that's one thing that we might be known, about, known by in the world. Are we actually for safe and loving homes for children? Are we actually for the holistic care of women who are at risk in their pregnancy or who otherwise don't want their pregnancy? Are we for those women? Are we for these kids so that there truly is no unwanted child in the world? Or are we just anti-abortion? Another example. If we can't affirm gay marriage, okay, if we can't get there based on Scripture, okay, that's one thing. Maybe we're going to be, we are known, and Christians largely are known in the world by being anti-homosexual, homophobic even. But if we're going to be known by having a position on something like gay marriage, are we actually going to be known for God-honoring singleness and supporting people and pursuing God-honoring singleness? Are we actually going to be for thriving marriages between a man and a woman that actually display the beauty and the glory of Jesus and his church in that relationship? Or are we going to be content just to condemn a certain kind of sin and have our own terrible relationships and terrible marriage and not actually be for thriving marriages or thriving singleness? The last one that I'll share with you this morning. God, forgive us for erecting unnecessary obstacles and removing the necessary ones to your kingdom. Forgive us for erecting unnecessary obstacles but removing the necessary ones to your kingdom. Here's what I mean by that. We often attempt to convert people to Christian morality before they come to Jesus himself. So we put up these unnecessary obstacles. You know, your life needs to look like this. You need to believe these certain things. You need to vote this way. You need to be for these causes and against these causes. You need to worship in this kind of style, whatever it might be. But at the same time, then we tear down 
the necessary obstacles, obstacles like repentance and faith. So we pretend that following Jesus is really just like a better version of ourselves, rather than dying to ourselves, we might be resurrected to new life with Christ. We pretend that following Jesus just means, or, or grace in following Jesus just means a blanket affirmation for whatever we want to do, rather than seeing that the gospel, by definition, is an equal opportunity offender. You know, it tells all of us that we're wrong and that we fall short and that we need to be transformed. So these are prayers that come to mind for me, and I don't know what you would add to that, that we might intercede on behalf of ourselves and God's people, saying these words with Daniel, O Lord, hear, O Lord, forgive, pay attention and act, delay not for your own sake. Okay, now the very end of this passage includes four words, apart from which everything else that I've just shared with you would be fruitless. Okay, God sends his messenger, Gabriel, and Gabriel assures Daniel that his prayers have been heard. And then he says these four words. You are greatly loved. You are greatly loved. Right? God makes his covenant with his people because he wants to. Because he loves us. Um, God listens to prayers. God promises to extend mercy. Not because he has to, but because he loves us. Daniel is sustained in exile. Daniel becomes this prophet receiving these visions. He becomes an intercessor on behalf of God's people. Why? Because he's greatly loved. And God hears him. And the same thing is true for you and me. Except that we get to see a fulfillment of that beyond what Daniel ever did. You are greatly loved. Man, woman, child in this room this morning, you are greatly loved. And the Apostle John tells us this is love. Not that we have loved God, but that he has loved us and that he sent his son as the propitiation for our sins, the substitutionary bearing his justice and wrath that we might not have to, that he might extend his mercy to us. So as we confess our sins, as we plead the mercy of God, as we pursue becoming the intercessors that the world needs us to be, may we never lose sight of that one thing, that we have a better intercessor. We have a better intercessor than we will ever be. Daniel was a great intercessor on behalf of the Israelite people. He's a great example for us. Jesus is a better intercessor. And rising from the dead, reigning forever, the the author of Hebrews tells us that Jesus lives to intercede on behalf of his people. That Jesus is able to save to the uttermost those who draw near to God through him. So you are greatly loved And your intercessor is none other than the one who loved you, quite literally, to death, to the point of death. So with confidence, let's draw near to the throne of grace, to this covenant-keeping God who sent his own son to demonstrate the depth of his love because with him, through him, we will surely receive mercy for ourselves and for others and find grace to help in a time of need. Amen. Let me pray for us. Jesus, as you call us to intercede on behalf of your people, we're grateful that you are a better intercessor. And we're grateful that you right now at this moment live to intercede for us. We know our sin and we fall short of the glory of God and we are a people that fall short of the glory of God. 
So we desperately need your mercy and we plead that you would hear and forgive and act for the sake of your own name and reputation in the world. God, forgive us for these things that we've thought about in brief this morning. Forgive us for the sin that is in each of us, the personal part of our own sin, God. The ways we specifically evidence that kind of sin and fracture and brokenness. Forgive us. The ways we do that together as a people, forgive us. Make us intercessors that we might plead your mercy and be faithful to your covenant to extend that mercy to us. And thank you for this visible picture at this table that we're going to come to now and be reminded that you make good on your promises, that you are faithful, that you intercede for us. I pray this in your name. Amen.